Welcome to Question Period as we return for our 50th season. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on our program, we exits. Between the pandemic and between all of the politics that have unfolded in the past months, uh, a, a, a lot of, of what we do is coming to an end. The We Charity shuts down in Canada, but who's at fault and what's the political fallout? Does the opposition want to keep the investigations going? We'll put that to NDP leader Jagmeet Singh and what he expects from the upcoming speech from the throne. Will he support it? Also, Pierre Polyevra will join us on the scrum with his view. And then, COVID comeback. As we're seeing with cases rising across the country, we are not out of the woods. Canadians need to continue to be vigilant. Will the return to school for millions of kids kickstart a second wave of COVID? And why did the Canadian government sideline its very own early warning pandemic system before the initial outbreak? Did that cost Canadian lives? The Health Minister Patty Haidu joins us. Plus, the Canadian ambassador to the United States tells us how long the Canada-US border might remain closed and the reaction to that stunning admission by US President Donald Trump that he actively downplayed the dangers of the virus. All that, plus the scrum looks ahead to the speech from the throne. Is big green spending really the answer? Are any parties ready to pull the election ripcord? CTV pollster Nick Nanos joins us to find out. This is question period. Let's go get some answers. The last thing that anyone wants is to have to once again shut down our economies and suspend our lives to try and counter a massive second wave. Well, with the number of coronavirus cases creeping back up across the country, millions of kids, mine included, are back in school. British Columbia has already started to scale back its economic reopening, shuttering nightclubs and banquet halls. Ontario is holding back on more reopenings as well. Are schools ready? to take on the threat of a potential second wave. Meanwhile, the government is launching a review of its early pandemic alarm system after scientists say their warnings about COVID-19 were sidelined. Could the spread have been mitigated from the beginning if that early warning system was still in place? Let's get some answers from the Health Minister, Patty Haidu. She joins us now from Toronto. Minister, hope you and the family are well. Great to have you back on the program. Let's start there. As the Globe and Mail first reported, your government sidelined the early warning system for the pandemic in 2018. It's called the Global Public Health Intelligence Network, which was supposed to give our country an early warning of the pandemic. You told me this week you hadn't even heard about this before the media reported on it. Who made the decision to sideline it? So the decision to change in, uh, the focus of the Health Information Network was made by the agency. And I can't speak to the individual that made that decision, but certainly it was an internal decision made to, re uh, made, uh, to really refocus resources to uh, domestic health concerns. And so, uh, of course, uh, you know, much concern about, uh, about that refocusing, and rightfully so. And that's why I've, I've ordered this external review to understand what happened and what that information network needs to look like going forward. But why was it refocused? Why did the scientists there say they were not being listened to? Like what happened there? Because this was literally the system as our, our distant early warning for exactly this horrible situation, the pandemic. What happened? 
Well, there were other ways that, uh, of course, the government of Canada gets information about outbreaks. As you know, we have uh, through through um, Minister uh, Blair's portfolio information that comes forward from our international partners. Dr. Tam is on the World Health Advisory Special Committee. Uh, she understood about the outbreak in early December. Uh, that information was relayed to me in in uh, by January 10th. We were all fully briefed up, and we knew we had a novel coronavirus on the scene globally. Uh, and really, you know, I. I think we have to remain focused on the fact that this was supposed to be an additional source of information for the country in terms of some of those granular details. What does it look like at the ground level? You know, my understanding of the information network was that it was analysts and scientists that would do some deep dives into, for example, cultural newspapers, uh, regional newspapers, using social media and chat groups to really kind of get a sense or a pulse on what was happening on the ground. And uh, yes, as, as you've heard and as I've heard, scientists were saying that they felt that they, they were hindered in their ability to do that work and that this domestic focus uh, really pulled them off work that was more international in nature. And that's what the review is meant to do, is to uncover but, how those decisions were made, uh, you know, and how we actually can build back to an information network that I believe is very, very valuable for the government of Canada. Well, if it's valuable and it's not redundant, um, and it may have affected how our country responded. Look, you, your government has been criticized for not shutting the borders quick enough or making masks mandatory or listening, adhering too closely to the WHO. Do you think lives could have been saved or Canada might have acted differently if those scientists who had that granular knowledge uh, would have given you that knowledge and Canada could have acted faster or differently? Look, all along we have relied on our public health experts to guide us in, in the response. And as you know, as coronavirus has evolved around the world, our response has evolved too. As we've understood more about the virus and how it's transmitted and what risk factors exist, we've evolved with it. We've invested billions of dollars to provinces and territories to ensure that we have the most sophisticated testing and contact tracing system possible. I'm here in Toronto today to, to fund isolation housing for, for people who have been diagnosed with COVID-19 or are living in cramped quarters. All of that work continues um, and, and our government will continue to respond with new information. We know that things will evolve uh, because no, but, this but is my, a my brand point new is speed matters. This is a but, brand new illness. No, I, I get it, but, but your government said it all the time. Speed has to trump perfection. The whole purpose of the early warning system was speed, so you can get speedier response. We didn't get this, have the same response, for example, as New Zealand. Look, uh, you told me that you didn't even know about this, but you're the minister and there is the concept of ministerial responsibility. Uh, how consequential to Canada's response was the fact that this was sidelined and un under your ministry? I mean, th that's going to be a key accountability question for you. Absolutely. And listen, that is exactly why the external review, because tools like this are important and, you know, it, 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 they should be used to their fullest capacity. In fact, uh, you know, it, I'm happy to report that the information network is now up and running and providing alerts to our, my department, to the government of Canada. But we do need to understand why that decision was taken within the agency without any knowledge politically that it was being taken. And that's the reason why I've ordered this investigation, because it's very important for us to understand how these decisions are made and why uh, whoever made that decision felt that it was uh, not important enough to let the politician, the health minister at that time, know about that change in focus for that particular tool. Right. Uh, all right. Let me move to quarantine because the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, said the quarantine system is broken and he pointed the finger at the federal government, saying, look, there's two and a half million people who have crossed the border since the pandemic. Uh, police have found in Ontario 620 people have violated their quarantine. 87,000 people have been checked, so it's expensive. 
there's been zero charges laid. There's been something like 42 tickets. He's saying it's broken and the federal government needs to change that. What is your response to that? Well, I'll just remind Premier Ford that the OPP, in fact, all uh, law enforcement have the full capacity to uh, lay penalties as they see appropriate if people are violating, violating the quarantine. Public Health Agency of Canada works really closely in partnership with the RCMP and other law enforcement agencies to make sure that if we're not able to contact people, we don't feel comfortable that they are, in fact, adhering to their quarantine, that, that these enforcement agencies are fully empowered to uh, apply penalties. And it's very important that they do so if they feel that warranted. Now, you know, the flip side to this is that uh, the infections that we're seeing in Ontario, are, in fact, are not being spurred by international travel. In fact, we know they're largely coming from community spread. So it's very important that Canadians, in particular Ontarians, continue to practice the public health measures that will keep them safe. Are schools safe? There's a big concern about the second wave. Cases are rising. I talked about that at the beginning with, with provinces like BC and Ontario. Are cases, Minister, rising now? Uh, and are, ki are schools prepared to keep kids safe. Well, I know all provinces and territories are working on plans to make sure that they have a really good handle on how to protect kids and how to protect, prevent outbreaks in schools. It varies from province to province. And of course, with different medical officers of health, there are different perspectives on how to do this. But I will tell you the extra $2 billion that we transfer to provinces and territories will go a long way in ensuring that they have the capacity to put into place plans that will protect young people. It's very important, though, that parents assure themselves by talking to their school boards, by talking to the teachers by making sure they understand what the process is and ultimately they have a role to play too. It's going to be a tough year for parents because every time your child gets a sniffle, you really should keep that child at home. Every time your child has a sore throat, that child should stay at home and that changes the landscape. I come from a generation where we went to school we would have to be pretty much, uh, well, you know, passed out if we could, didn't go to school. And certainly my children remember that as well. But this year is going to be different. It's going to be very important that if our child is not feeling well, that we, we, uh, we, we keep them out of school for that day. And that will go a long way to prevent, uh, you know, spread in schools. All right, last question for you, Minister, uh, and it has to do with Donald Trump. D Donald Trump, there's a tape emerged from Bob Woodward and his new book, Rage, uh, that Donald Trump actively admitted back in February he was downplaying the dangers of the virus. He knew it was deadly. He knew it was spreading and he said I'm, I'm downplaying it to avoid chaos um, did that impact the situation not only in the United States but that's gonna have an impact on on Canada as well and how we handle the virus uh, did that put more lives in danger and has that impacted Canada the US response uh, what public health officials have always said and what public health theory says is that people can't protect their health unless they know what the risks are. And so, you know what, from very early stage in Canada, we were saying wash your hands, make sure that you monitor your symptoms, make sure you check in with public health if you're feeling unwell. This is especially dangerous for vulnerable people in our communities. Uh, you know, we know that uh, the risk was low in early days, but the risk was high for specific populations. The more information that we had, then the, quick, the more quickly we were able to get it out. So, for example, when it became clear that masks could actually reduce transmission. You know, we, we talked about the wearing of non-medical masks in communities. So it's very important that as information and evidence evolves and as we get that information as leaders, that we are transparent and honest with Canadians about what they can do to best right. protect themselves. That's how people can actually reduce infection when they have those tools. In, in other words, you don't buy the idea that you downplay it in order to avoid chaos. That strategy is not something you buy. Well, I, I, 
I don't know if you recall this, uh, Evan, but uh, you know, some months ago when I was telling people that they might be sick for a couple of weeks or have to stay home and take care of a sick person, then they should get out, get outside, go out and get uh, prepared for the eventuality that people might be uh, stuck in their homes. I was uh, accused of scaring everyone. So no, I believe that actually providing people with information that's credible, that's realistic, uh, in a in a calm way, of course, and to tell people, look, these are the things that we're doing to prepare as a country. These are the kinds of things that we could anticipate if things got worse is completely appropriate and and and, and Canadian we have to trust in Canadians they need the information to make good decisions in their families in their households in their workplaces and if they don't have that information it makes it much more difficult for them to a take it seriously and b prepare themselves for the potential that the virus could be spreading in their community all right, I got to leave it there. I appreciate your time. Uh, Health Minister Patty Heidi, always good to have you on the program. I appreciate it. Coming up on our program, will the investigations into the government's ties to the now shuttered We Charity continue? And will the NDP support big new green spending hinted at in the speech in the throne? NDP leader Jagmeet Singh joins us next. Stay right here with the question period. angry at anything I'm angry at the situation you know 25 years of incredible passion um, incredible impact the opportunity to, to, to change lives an amazing team who've been there throughout that process um, and then politics took over in a shocking announcement the we charity is shuttering operations in Canada selling 50 million dollars of real estate holdings in the Toronto area we charity became collateral damage in the political scandal after they were awarded a 900 million dollar government contract a contribution agreement that would administer the student volunteer program despite their very close ties to the Trudeau family and to the former finance minister Bill Morneau after significant pressure by the opposition, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was pressured to withdraw the contract. And now he's under an ethics investigation. And on Friday, the lobbying commissioner announced an investigation into the wheat charity itself. What's the political fall at all this? And with the Liberals hinting that their speech on the throne will include big green spending on the economy, will the opposition pull the trigger on an election or support it? Let's find out. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh joins us now. I hope you and the family are well, sir. Great to have you back on the program. Who Thank do you, you blame for the destruction of the We Charity in Canada? Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, there's no question about it. It was uh, inappropriate decisions made that more importantly ended up hurting students. Really, the Liberal government could have immediately released more funds for student grants for an extension, expansion of the Canada Summer Jobs Program to help students that are struggling with student debt. There were many things that could have been done directly to help students instead of creating a brand new program and then uh, falling into all sorts of inappropriate activities around the fact that uh, a minister said that there was no contact before the contract was awarded. Documents have shown that, in fact, the minister provided uh, very clear, detailed uh, information so that the We Charity would be the only answer when the public service came back with a response about which company or which organization would be appropriate. So there's all sorts of things that happen here where the Liberal government tried to help themselves, those close to them, and it ended up hurting up people because the Prime Minister prorogued or shut down Parliament, which meant that people who were waiting to see changes to EI and to serve to get supports are now uncertain about their future. So these are all the uh, responsibility of the Liberal government. Okay. Uh, what, I mean, there's been investigations now. Your party wants the investigations to continue. What questions, in your view, still need to be answered about this controversy? 
Well, one of the th first things is there was a host of documents, a massive number of documents that were released, and none of those documents were able to be put to witnesses. Uh, after they were released, the parliament was shut down by Prime Minister Trudeau, and that meant that the results of that document disclosure, the, the information that was received, couldn't be put to witnesses. For example, Minister uh, Bradley Strugger said certain things to committee that are now contradicted seemingly by the documents, she would be uh, one of the first witnesses to be recalled to then be tested with that document, saying, well, the documents say something different from your testimony. Uh, more uh, questions are, are, are coming forward as we look through those documents about the information that, that the government put forward as their position now being uh, contradicted by those documents. So that's something really important for Canadians to know. All right, um, let, let's move on. So that's going to be something. Committees will be restruck on that. Just out of interest, would you like to recall either Minister Chegger or the Prime Minister to committee? I think those, both of those are options, given what's been released in the documents. Both of those are options. All right, the speech on the throne is coming up. You said you're not looking for an election, but if the, the Liberals put on what you've called the so-called poison pill, you said you're ready. W what is the poison pill you're actually talking about? What's this line in the sand? Well, the general sense is this, that our position is, given that people are worried about serve ending, people are afraid, they're uncertain about what's going to happen, and there's at least over a million Canadians that cannot be helped unless there's legislative changes that will include those Canadians into any future support. That's our priority. We want to get help to Canadians. Small businesses that I've been speaking to are telling us that they're worried about some of their supports ending and the fact that they are unable to get back to their business levels that they used to be at. So we want to help people out. That's our priority, not finding a way for this government to fall. But if the Liberal government continues down a path where they are continuing to help themselves and it hurts people, we are open to exploring well, any What does that mean? Like, like I just, I'm just trying to get what you need. Okay, so let, let's, first of all, uh, universal pharmacare, something they talked about in the last election. If that's not in the speech from the throne, could you still vote for a speech from the throne? Well, the problem is the speech from the throne is going to be a lot of empty words. And they might say a lot of the right things. Really, for me, the test is going to be in the implementation. Because we've, we've seen this government, the, the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Trudeau, and the Liberal government say a lot of things that people wanted to hear. But we haven't seen the action. So Pharmacare is a great example. They talked about it during the campaign. They even were convinced by us to start using the word universal Pharmacare. But they've done nothing to date. And we are ready and willing partners to implement universal pharmacare that's public. Given we're in a pandemic, people want to stay healthy and that they've lost jobs and lost their benefits. People can't afford their medication when they're trying to be healthy. This seems like a very obvious step for us to do. So we'll listen to the throne speech, but I'm really worried about the implementation, the actual action that we need. Oh, oh, okay, but are you saying that then you'll reserve your judgment. You may vote for the, the throne speech, but because, as you call that, quote, empty words, you're going to reserve maybe a, vo a vote on a confidence motion for when you actually see the budget, the, the new finance measure. Is that really the, the battle zone for you? It's not the speech from the throne. Well, really, for me, it's, it's results. I want to see action. And the action is going to come from the budget more so than the throne speech. The throne speech is going to be a nice speech. And I'm not going to be surprised if the Prime Minister says a lot of the things that we've been asking for because we put it out into the public domain. We want to see a just recovery. We want to see jobs created in communities. We want to see a better social safety net and better health care. So I won't be surprised if the Prime Minister uh, says some of those things. But what I've been surprised by is the fact that the Prime Minister says well, something but then doesn't act on it, doesn't actually deliver what people need. And that's what I'm going to be really 
uh, focusing my attention on. Mr. Singh, there's, there's concerns that you basically are playing poker with a pair of twos in, in terms of an election because the NDP's too broke to call an election. You guys too broke to actually run a serious campaign? You got to wait? Not at all. We are prepared to fight an election at any time if it's in the interest of people, but it's just not our priority right now. Our priority is getting help to people. We know that there's a lot of pressing and urgent needs. That's our priority, to get those supports to people who are in need. Mr. Singh, well, just out of interest, Donald Trump was recorded by the journalist um, Bob Woodward saying that back in February, he purposely downplayed the deadly nature of the COVID-19 virus, the coronavirus. Uh, do you think, what do you, what's your comment on that? Do you think that put lives in danger? And do you think that affected Canada, not only our health, but our economy as well? It is appalling that the, that the president would say, would, would acknowledge the danger and then downplay it. It is appalling and it absolutely put lives at risk. It put uh, people's livelihoods at risk and it resulted in people dying. This is completely irresponsible and something that is reprehensible and rightly so people are condemning it. Do you think that means that we should keep the, our border with them essentially closed for longer? I think that's what people, uh, healthcare experts are recommending that given the fact that there is no plan in the States, there's rampant numbers that uh, we should follow the healthcare experts advice around opening those borders. And right now they're suggesting we do not open those borders. All right, before we uh, play who let the dogs out, uh, real quick, uh, Jagmeet Singh, you wrote letters uh, to the other party saying you want parliament to come back before September 23rd, which is, pro why do you want parliament to come back a week early? Well, what we're seeing is that uh, people are up against a deadline. The Liberals are saying they're going to shut down CERB by the end of September, but a lot of Canadians, over a million, will not be able to receive any supports unless there's legislation put forward either to extend CERB or, or to put in place the new changes to EI to make sure all Canadians are covered. So absent the ability to do that because the Prime Minister shut down Parliament, we need to recall Parliament and pass legislation to get help to people I'm recommending that if we cannot get the changes in place to help people with an expanded EI that covers all Canadians, then we need to extend CERB until we can do that. All right. I, I got to leave it there, Mr. Singh. I really appreciate you joining us. I don't see any signs that Parliament will come back before the 23rd, but we'll see what happens tomorrow. All right. Uh, coming up on this program, Canadian Ambassador to the United States, Kirsten Hillman will join us next with her thoughts on what the President said about COVID-19 and how long that border will essentially remain closed. Lots to come. Stay with Question Period. Welcome back to Question Period. Downplaying death in a stunning taped admission from February, U.S. President Donald Trump admitted to veteran journalist Bob Woodward that he knew exactly how deadly and contagious the coronavirus was, but was purposely downplaying the threat to the American people. After that tape, there are multiple examples of the president telling the American people that COVID-19 would go away, would disappear, is less deadly than the flu when he admitted privately it wasn't. COVID-19 has run rampant across the U.S. There's over 6 million cases and almost 200,000 deaths. As the old saying goes, when America sneezes, Canada gets a cold. But that has deadly new significance now. How concerned should Canadians be and how will this impact the closure of the U.S.? Canada border. Let's find out. Joining me now is the Canadian ambassador to the U.S., Kirsten Hillman. Ambassador Hillman, first of all, pleasure to have you on the program. Um, did the Canadian government know that the President of the United States was actively downplaying the dangers, essentially lying to the public about the dangers of COVID-19 back in February? 
Uh, hi, Evan. First of all, thanks for having me. It really, it's really good to be here talking to you. Um, you know, Canada is focused on our approach to COVID, and we're focused on our expert advice, and we're focused on the science that underpins our decision making, um, and and that's what we know. But Ambassador, you know that what happens there affects us specifically on the border. Did the U.S.'s handling and, and continued handling of the COVID-19 virus, is that impacting how long the U.S.-Canada border will remain essentially closed, except for, of course, essential services? Well, Evan, you know, the maybe first I'd like to start by saying that when it comes to discussions around the border, um, we are having those conversations. I'm having those conversations down here regularly. Uh, you know, every week, every 10 days at minimum, uh, comparing notes with the administration on how things are going at the border, what's happening in our two countries, and what we think the implications of that are for the border restrictions that we have in place. Um, and the same is true of colleagues in Ottawa in talking to counterparts down here. And in those discussions, Canada approaches the issue from the perspective of what is the science telling us? What are our experts telling us? What are the measures that we need to take or keep in place in order to protect Canadians? That's job one for us, is protecting Canadians. And so, you know, what I can say is the U.S. understands that. Those conversations are extremely collaborative. They're extremely co um, constructive. And, and we have measures in place that both sides feel are working really well. But, Ambassador, um they clearly have a different view. Donald Trump every day says, open up, open up, open up, whether it's you know, football leagues or stores or cities or campaign events. The way they're handling it is radically different than Canada. What if the U.S. says, we want to open the border now, we're ready, it's time to open it up, and Canada's not ready? Have, have you had that discussion, and what will determine an agreement on both sides? Like, what is the line you need to see? Um, the U.S. is not pressuring us to open the border or to loosen the restrictions that we have in place. We both agree that the measures that we have in place are doing what they were designed to do. We know that, the Americans know that, and we're really, we're really satisfied with what's happening. So it could go on for a while, obviously, as this, this evolves. L let's talk about the impact of trade, the other big issue. Um, you know the White House trade advisor, Pete Navarro, uh, recently said that Canada is a backdoor for dumping ground for goods from China that are subjected to UF tariffs, and he believes Canada is a, a, a backdoor. Donald Trump repeatedly has, says that, he repeats that. Last, the other day, he just repeated that Canada took advantage of the U.S. on auto. This is part of his kind of hit list, as you know. Uh, when do you expect the U.S. to lift tariffs on Canada's aluminum? When is that going to happen? So that's not a question, I, I, unfortunately, that I can answer. Our, our view is the, those tariffs should come off now. They should come off today. They are uh, unjustified. They are primarily and first and foremost harmful to Americans at a time when they need them least. And the proof of that is 97% of the U.S. aluminum industry is opposed to the tariffs. And there's wide bipartisan opposition to the tariffs. So the tariffs make no sense. They hurt Americans. They should come off. And, you know, Canada is going to stand up for ourselves on this as we as we do with the Americans when we don't agree with them. And we will put into place dollar for dollar countermeasures. Right. That's that's you know, that's what what we're going to have to do. Dollar for dollar countermeasures. I mean, the, the, the big concern, Ambassador, is the fraying relationship between the U.S. and Canada. And, and look, it's the closest trading relationship. But whether it's on softwood lumber or aluminum, Canada's still getting hits. And then Pete Navarro as well belittled Canada's contribution in 
uh, Afghanistan, saying every time a Canadian shows up in uniform, is it doing us a favor? That infuriated the former Canadian commander of the forces, like General Rick Hillier. Did you, did Canada respond to that insult to our forces? Do you have a demarche, or did you have any response to the U.S. for that insult? So, the first, the first thing I'd like to say, and, and say very clearly, as, as Canada's ambassador here in the United States, I have many uh, of our armed forces and their families as members of my team here, both in Washington and across the United States. And I couldn't be more proud of what they do and the sacrifices they make and the lives that they lead to keep us safe and secure in Canada. So, I, first of all, I would like to say that very clearly to everyone. Secondly, those sentiments of pride, respect, and appreciation are sentiments that I have heard over and over again from the U.S. government and from Americans. Um, I've heard them also recently, you know, in, in the past week or two. So that's what I know. I know that our forces are deeply respected by Canadians, and I know they're deeply respected by the United States and Americans. Did you respond, though, to the administration and say that was an insult? You got a senior advisor to the president insulting Canadian forces. Did, was there any Canadian response? I had some conversations, yes. You did have conversations. Was there an apology? I had many members um, of my network of contacts here in Washington express their deep appreciation and respect for the Canadian troops. Ambassador, is the U.S. putting pressure on you and Canada to ban Huawei? Uh, this is tied up deeply, of course, in China relations, the trade war, and, of course, the Meng Wanzhou situation and the extradition. How much pressure is, is, is the U.S. putting on Canada to ban Huawei from our 5G network? You know, we have conversations with all of our allies, the Americans, uh, our Five Eyes allies, all of our intelligence allies around issues related to the proper defense and security. Of, of Canada, of its networks, and and of our, our ability to protect ourselves. Uh, and those conversations involve a multitude of, of topics, um, including different uh, suppliers for, you know, for, for tech, tech services and, and 5G. Um, I think that they're, they're complicated, they're complicated conversations, but, but ultimately we'll make our decision based on, on what is going to keep Canadians the safest. Right. Are, are we close? You know, the UK's made a decision, Australia's made a decision. We're the last one of the five eyes to make the decision. How close are we? Yeah, you know, I think that's a question you're going to have to ask uh, some of my colleagues in Ottawa. I think that these are discussions that are, are important, they're ongoing, they're highly technical, and they're fairly complex. Um, so I know that they're ongoing and being taken very seriously. All right, I got to leave it there today. Ambassador Hillman, first of all, a great pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. All right, coming up on our program, We Charity may be closing up its shop in Canada, but does the scandal that dogged the Trudeau Liberals all summer disappear as well? The Scrum is here next, and we'll be joined by conservative finance critic Pierre Polyevra as our special guest. Stay right here with Question Period. Obviously, the way it ended up working out um, was really unfortunate for everyone involved. Uh, particularly for the students who didn't get those grants uh, over the course of the summer for the volunteer work and the community work they were doing in the summer. 
So a political scandal that sent a charity packing. Late this week, We Charity suddenly announced it will close down its Canadian operations, sell off its valuable real estate portfolio in Toronto, about 50 million bucks. But does this remarkable turn of events mean that the We controversy is actually over politically? Well, opposition members are saying no. They're demanding new documents. But what's left to find out? And what's the political fallout? Let's bring in the scrum to find out. Joining us today, Joyce Napier, CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief is here. Jamal Giovanni, the host of the new News Talk 1010 radio show in Toronto. Congrats on the new show, by the way. And our special guest this round is the conservative finance critic, Pierre Polyevra. Good to see everybody. And I'm going to begin with our guest, uh, Mr. Polyevra. You tweeted out already, uh, you can run but you can't hide to the government. Uh, what questions remain now about the WE controversy and what's your party going to do about it? To start with, we want full disclosure. The government promised to release all information in its possession related to the WE organization, but unfortunately, they blacked out dozens of pages uh, of information. That blackout process to protect cabinet confidences and personal information was supposed to have been examined and decided upon by the parliamentary law clerk. In other words, the lawyer of parliament, not by government bureaucrats, or ministers. So we want to use Parliament's authority to unredact that information and find out if it is relevant. Secondly, we want full disclosures from WE. It was the, the WE brothers gave us commitments that they would release uh, a lot of different uh, documents and answers to questions, but with Trudeau's prorogation, they have since uh, 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 pulled back from that commitment, so we are going to impose that. We also want to ask about the inconsistencies between what Liberal ministers told committee and which subsequent document disclosures have shown. So those are just a three examples of what we need to discover, and that's why the Finance Committee will be back in business in late September to investigate. Uh, jo Joyce, what's the political fallout, and what key questions do remain, in your view? Oh, well, what's interesting, uh, uh, that yesterday the WE charity said they would actually hand over those documents that the Finance Committee, and rightfully so, has asked for. Uh, so when the House returns uh, after September 23rd, we should hear more about that. Uh, so uh, is, is there any fallout? Absolutely. I mean, has this hurt the Liberals? Absolutely. It's leveled the playing field, that's for sure. And uh, yes, do we want to get to the bottom of WE? I don't know how much how much of a bottom there is and how much more there is to learn. But, you know, I trust that that committee made up of all parliamentarians um, is doing the right thing. Jamil, uh, what, what's your view on, on what questions remain, but maybe the political fallout of the, the WE controversy? Well, I hope that the political fallout is heightened scrutiny on the decisions that the Liberal government is going to be making mm -hmm. moving forward. I think Tom Mulcair was completely right when he said this was a, uh, an incident of celebrity corruption, of rich people, famous people doing favors for one another, doing things behind the public's back as if we don't have a right to a certain level of transparency and honesty in how the government behaves. And my hope is that this is motivation and fuel for the opposition, like our friend uh, uh, Pierre, to, uh, to continue holding this government into the sunlight and make sure that we can see what's going on. All right, let me go back to Mr. Polyev. You're the finance critic. Uh, you're waiting for the speech in the throne. Uh, look, the Liberals have already said they're going to support many industries, possibly green industries, but you tweeted out, quote, easy rule. If a business venture needs a government handout, it's a money loser. I'm just trying to figure out what that means. 
under the Harper government, many industries get support. So you don't support any yep. form of subsidies. For example, the oil and gas industry gets massive subsidies. What do you actually mean by that? Well, first of all, I dispute your claim that the oil and gas industry gets massive subsidies. In fact, the oil and gas industry is not asking for subsidies. They're asking to build pipelines with their own money. Remember, all of the pipelines... They get capital depreciation. They, they do get all sorts of subsidies. You know Evan, that. Evan, the capital depreciation is something available to all industries, and all it is is an ability to write off your investment in year one rather than over... 20 or 30 years. So you can get rid of that if you want to. In fact, we phased it out for the oil and gas sector when we were in power. But the reality is that if a, a business venture is um, viable, why would we need to subsidize it? And if it's not viable, why would we want to subsidize it? Why not take the exact same money and lower taxes for all entrepreneurs so that we create uh, a dynamic free market economy where businesses get ahead by having the best product rather than the best lobbyist. Okay, uh, well, Jamil, let me just put that to you because this is a government that's now spent $350 billion in deficit supporting a lot of industries, not only in the pandemic, but look, lots of industries have had support before. The auto industry in the 2008, 2009 industry got billions of dollars from the Harper government. Uh, what do you make of that and what are you looking for in the speech on the throne? Well, I think that ultimately the reason we need industries, not just for the goods and services it provides, but also for the jobs that it provides mm. to Canadian people and in providing support as a government to certain industries and certain organizations at times like right now when we're recovering from a pandemic, if that's going to help sustain jobs and create jobs for Canadian people, then I think that's important and that's worth thinking about. And that's what I want to see in the speech from the throne. I want to see a conversation about where jobs are coming from and how we're going to build a better economy for more Canadian people. Joyce, what about you? What's your radar saying about the upcoming speech from the throne? Well, you know, I think we should see a little bit of um, a little bit more collaboration here because I don't think Canadians are ready for an election. We know that the throne speech is a confidence vote, and this government could fall and bang, we're in an election campaign. I don't think it's time for that. I think it's time for and and, and what we know is, and we've asked the parties this week, this past week, have you been approached by the Liberals? Is this a collaboration? Uh, you know, writing of the throne speech. These are extraordinary times. This is not like the last throne speech or the 10 previous ones. This is very different. We're in a pandemic. Things are likely to get a little bit worse before they get better. We don't even know how long this is going to last. So can we see a little bit of that? Guys, got to leave it there. Up here, Paul Ever, good to have you on the program as our guest. The rest of the scrum will stick around because coming up as the threats of COVID-19 loom large, the federal government will soon reveal, as we just talked about, the roadmap for an economic recovery. What will the post-pandemic plan be? Will it be enough to stave off an election call? What do the polls say? Well, we're going to find out because our CTV pollster, Nick Nanos, joins us next. Stay with us. government has no interest in seeing an election this fall. We know that there's still an awful lot of hardship that Canadians are going through. There's still real concerns about a potential second wave of COVID-19. We need to be vigilant. We need to be there to help Canadians. We need to be there to relaunch our economy. Ah, it is election speculation season, which 
is really the political equivalent of high school gossip. Still, two weeks from the speech in the throne, the government is preparing its outline for the road to recovery. Will it be a big green spending agenda or will the Liberals try to wrestle the $360 billion deficit to the ground? The government does need the support of at least one main opposition party or... Here we go. It's election time. So what are the politics of the plan? To talk about that, let's bring back the scrum. Joyce Napier is back. Jamil Giovanni is back. And our special guest for this round is CTV pollster and the CEO of Nanos Research, Nick Nanos. Great to have you on the program, Nick, and great to have everyone back. Nick, let's just start with you because you've been obviously polling a lot over the summer in terms of Canadians' readiness for a federal election. Where is public opinion right now and what, what do Canadians want to see from political parties? Well, actually, what Canadians want to see is probably more stimulus, and they want pragmatism. Canadians are trying to pay their bills. When we look at the ballot numbers, it's tight between the Liberals and the Conservatives. It's a coin toss, so who knows what might happen. Okay, uh, and, and by the way, Aaron O'Toole, brand new leader, is he uh, helping the Conservatives already, Nick? Yeah, he's helping the Conservatives a little bit, but four out of every ten Canadians say they don't know enough to form an opinion. So he's a bit of a blank slate right now. Joyce, you know, the Liberals, uh, what, are you, what are you hearing about where they're going in this speech from the throne and, and potentially the, quote, road to recovery, which could be the ballot box question whenever there's an election? Well, a few days ago, I don't know if you paid attention to what Christian Freeland was saying. It was, you know, going to be very green. Um, you know, so the environment was going to be, you know, front and center. But then the spike started, uh, the COVID spike. So these are uncertain times. So I think what they're doing right now is writing and rewriting uh, a lot uh, because you have to adapt to that because number one priority here is health. Uh, probably very close behind is the economy and, you know, people's jobs. And, you know, everybody's worried. You're not going to talk to anybody who's saying, yeah, hey, I'm having a fantastic time right now. So they have to take that into account. So the ambitions of, you know, the first mandate of the Liberal Party to turn Canada into a more green country and all that, well, you know, we'll have to take second place. So I think it's going to be, yes, as Nick says, a more pragmatic, or at least I hope it will be a more pragmatic speech uh, to the throne, from the uh, throne. Well, it's interesting, Jamil, because Justin Trudeau keeps saying this is a unique opportunity. Uh, are we moving from pizzazz to pragmatism? And what are you watching for? Well, what I'm looking for is some recognition that even before the pandemic, there were people who were frustrated because they weren't getting the opportunities in our economy that they wanted. That's especially the case out West. But I think there are people in every province who feel that way. So if he's just focused on bringing us back to where we were in February or March, that's still not good enough. And I'm looking for a vision that's going to bring us to a place where the dignity of work and opportunity is a reality for more Canadians. Uh, Nick, how about the D word, deficit? I mean, 350, $360 billion could go to 400. I get the that was a pragmatic spend that all parties supported in the height of the pandemic. Is fighting the deficit a top of mind or is extending support for a longer time top of mind? You know, what's interesting in a poll that we just released this week with Bloomberg, 40%, four out of every 10 Canadians want to see the big deficit, big, big spending, big stimulus to continue. Only about 15% of Canadians want to go back to balanced budgets. So there's a significant proportion of the population, 40%, you know what? 
That also coincidentally is what's needed to form a majority government. There's a significant proportion that don't want to turn the spigot off and want to continue spending. What about just real quick, because you saw that Bill Morneau, who's the former finance minister, Nick, had the, you know, ethics, uh, uh, the Elections Act violation this week, lobby commissioner now and going to investigate the WE charity, WE charity closes. Is that WE scandal hurting the Liberals? Is that having a drag on them? Oh, absolutely. You know, the thing is, is they had a 10-point lead. Now they don't have a 10-point lead. It's a tie. And uh, they're basically in big trouble right now when it comes to the trend line. It's working against them. Uh, Joyce, do you think that's something that the opposition wants to capitalize right now? Oh, you bet. Uh, I mean, you know, if indeed four out of ten Canadians, as Nanos Polls is, is saying, don't know uh, who uh, Mr. O'Toole is, well, you know, that is a great opportunity. And I don't know if you remember uh, his his speech at 1.30 in the morning at the, at the leadership convention, uh, at, at the Conservative leadership convention, when after, you know, all that mess up with the ballot counting machines and all those delays, and it was 1.30 in the morning, and he said, I want to talk to those million of Canadians who don't know me, Hi, my name is Erin O'Toole. It was charming. It was, uh, you know, it worked. Uh, it was humble. It was, you know, he connected with people. So I think they have a great opportunity with somebody who could reunite the party. I mean, he doesn't have a lot of time if there's a snap election. Uh, but, you know, if people are fed up with the Liberals and, you know, we hear that probably a lot of people are, well, then that's a great opportunity for the Conservatives. Uh, Jamil, uh, Battleground Ontario. Uh, one of the things that Aaron O'Toole pitched was he can win Ontario, where they lost in the 905. Uh, you know, he's going to have an uphill battle in Quebec. I get that. Uh, what's the ballot box question emerging in that province? I think the ultimate question is will the Conservative Party, if they win, actually make people's lives better? Will they make people's lives easier? That's where the suspicion is, and that's where often the diversity question in Ontario comes from, is, is this a party that's thinking about all Canadians of all different backgrounds and thinking about how to empower us and put us in a position to succeed? Or is it a party that's just thinking about what has been called in the past old stock Canadians? And I think Aaron O'Toole can communicate to all people in Ontario and rebrand the Conservative Party from some of the disastrous decisions that were made in 2015. Nick, we want to weigh in on that? Yeah, you know, expect the F word, fear, to be played by the Liberals. They're going to say that what type of government you're going to want, a Liberal government that errs on the side of being generous or potentially having a Conservative government that might not be as generous in supporting Canadians and creating those opportunities. Well, we're going to find out just, uh, we've got an election in New Brunswick tomorrow, the first COVID election and the COVID campaign, so we're watching that closely. There may be an election in British Columbia with uh, Mr. Premier Horgan, who's the NDP there, so, uh, you know, COVID might be the referendum question for everyone. Uh, Joyce, Jamil, and Nick, i got to leave it there. Lots coming up. I really appreciate your thoughts today, and thanks for being here. And I want to thank everyone who's been part of this wonderful program for half a century. That's right, it's the 50th season of question period, the technical teams over the years, the producers, the hosts who's in giant steps. I'm honored to walk journalists like Jane Tabor, Kevin Newmore, Newman, mentors like Bob Fife, and of course our journalistic North Star, Craig Oliver, but mostly to all of you, not just our audience, but citizens, citizens who care about this great country so deeply, who join all of us in debating its direction at kitchen tables, who are part of the process to find the best way to respond to any challenge from conflicts to conventions, from politics to pandemics. 
by holding our leaders of any party to account with fair, tough questions and without losing our humanity, as Jamil just said, which is the cornerstone of our democracy. So thanks to all of you, to many more years, and we'll be back here in seven short days, and I'll see you on PowerPlay tomorrow. Take good care.